guys. It's been a while, it feels like, since we've had Sunday school. It's been a long Christmas. I hope it was good for you all. Um, as we get going, a couple notes just um, just over the, the next couple uh, months. We've got a, a couple different short uh, Sunday school teachings we're going to go through. So while people are kind of settling in, give you a little bit of update on that. So this next three weeks, we're going to be looking at kind of a biblical perspective on money. And so this isn't necessarily just all the ins and out of how to budget and do those things, but we're going to be framing kind of how should we be thinking about money as believers? How should we be orienting ourselves? How did God even create it within the world to be used and to be managed? And so kind of looking at that in a couple different weeks. Um, and so the first week we'll be looking at the goodness of money. Next week we'll be looking at kind of the curse or the brokenness of money and finances and resource resources, and then the last week will be kind of more practical, having um, just some guys, uh, Ryan Haycock is one of them, and then Drew Schaefer are going to be kind of pulling out some of the things that, they're both financial planners, and so they have a lot more wisdom than me in some of those respects, and so pulling out some kind of wisdom for us there, just practically. Um, and so after that, we're going to be jumping into a short Sunday School series just on parenting, and so that'll be probably another three weeks that we'll be looking at parenting um, just in Scripture, and Jeff will be teaching that. And then after that, we're going to be jumping into Genesis. And so there's the, the general plan that we're looking at over the next several months and through this spring. Um, so money, if you don't have a handout, there's some out in the foyer there and a couple more here. Uh, money is kind of an a interesting topic. It's a difficult topic because of... Um, just the way that our culture operates. There's lots of perspectives and opinions about money, and if you enter in to think about money and how should I think about money, how should I spend money, there's no shortage of opinions about what you should do. And this is a place where sin is, it's just expounds itself and shows itself very readily because of what money brings, resources bring. They bring power, they bring uh, hope. They bring all sorts of things. And so oftentimes when we think about money in the church, uh, we will run very quickly back to it. it's very possible to be caught in sin. And so I don't, we, we look away very quickly and say, well, money is a necessary evil, but I don't know what to do with it. So I'm just going to turn away. And yet this isn't necessarily a biblical perspective, but it is certainly one that we can easily adopt. Uh, Christian Smith, uh, a theologian and writer, says this. He says, Some say the Bible teaches material prosperity and financial riches as blessings from God for faithfulness, which believers ought to aspire to win. Others report that the Bible teaches the need for, vo <clears throat> for voluntary simplicity or poverty, a kind of new lay monasticism. Yet others claim that the Bible effectively teaches a prudent responsibility and a balance concerning money, when it, which fits a middle-class American lifestyle and sensibilities quite well. All appeal to multiple passages of Scripture to make their cases, however in tension or at variance with one another their cases turn out to be. I don't know if you can resonate with this, but it is very easy to hear people teach and talk about money, and they will just kind of grab some random text as the full reason why you can do this. And so this can be for good reasons or bad reasons, but oftentimes these things are kind of taken out of the context of the way that Scripture even talks about finances and resources. 
So we think about um, even our own context. This money becomes such a big topic when you think about it within God's good creation within the world. But we think about America, and we live in um, a place that is extremely wealthy. It doesn't mean every single person is wealthy, but America becomes this place in which this problem is, is huge because what do we do with all of our money? Because America has tons of money. Like we're, uh, Ryan, you probably know this better than me, but I mean, we have the biggest GDP uh, in the world. And so, like, we have lots to go around. And we're one of the wealthiest nations per capita in the world. Uh, and so, like, we look at America, and oftentimes other countries will look at America, and they say, I want to get there. Why? Well, there's freedom, there's money, there's <laughs> money to be earned, there's ways to earn the things that money brings. And so it becomes a rather interesting place to be as believers. Of These things tend to shape and form our views around money, sometimes more than the Bible does. Um, there's a list here of, of different perspectives on money when we think of what do we do with all of our stuff. I don't know about you guys, but I, I recognize just the wealth within our nation just in, in s- simple little things. Like the number of times I have to run to the Goodwill just to get rid of excess. Like I, I just have lots and lots of excess. And I'm not necessarily among the wealthiest. But I just, I mean, this is an expectation that I have in this world that, you know, just little things like going out to eat on a regular basis is something I don't really have to think about, really. Like it may not be the wisest, but, you know, I, I can make those decisions. And many people in America live in a very similar place. Not everyone, but this is kind of the result of living in a world that has this much. And so we do have different views on what do we do with all of our stuff. Uh, A couple of them I'll give to you. We live in a political world, and obviously um, one of the ways that this shows itself is just what how do we manage resources what is the right way to approach this if you get into kind of a a democratic or a more socially governed world uh, one of the things that they'll often say is that um, the the way that we think about wealth should be that um, you can kind of do whatever you want you don't have to necessarily work um, for your wealth like it should be spread around equally. So kind of the idea is like you can live your life in a kind of honest, caring, gentle way. And as long as you're kind of doing that, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. Like the, the wealth should be spread around. And this is obviously an extreme form of that type of view to say like spread the wealth around. Like we, we should be willing to do this. Um, and the farther you get into extreme views here, the farther it starts to become a reality. You think of a Republican view, an extreme Republican view, and one of the things is it's not just do whatever you want and money will come to you. We'll, we'll take care of you because you live here. It's a you have the, the right and the ability to earn that wealth. And you hear this pretty regularly within the Republican view of uh, here is a land of opportunity. Now it's up to you to kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go earn it. And there's plenty of opportunities to do this. So one is like you have the right towards wealth just because you live here. The other is you have the ability to go earn wealth. And so there's pretty drastically different views right there to say which one is right. <clears throat> then you get into the Christian worldviews, and you start to run into guys like Joel Olstein and Kenneth Copeland, these guys who say that not only 
um, do you have a right to wealth, but God, if you are faithful, God wants to bless you. You are the ends of God's blessing, and if you are faithful enough, if you love God enough, if you do the right things enough, you have the right to wealth, and God will do these things. It becomes very, very manipulative in the middle of this, and this is especially one of those areas that they start to quote proof texts just completely out of context to say there are things that are true in Scripture that they've just kind of ripped out. Uh, Another one that we heard in that quote earlier is kind of of um, kind of a new monasticism. You think of the Catholic priests, they take vows of celibacy and, and of poverty, and it sounds enticing when you think of Jesus and his disciples. You're like, is this really what we're supposed to do, to let go of all things in the earth and to say, there's no benefit to me here? Um, I one time had a guy show up at the first church I worked at. He was a younger man, and he showed up uh, to this college group I was running at the time, and he had chosen to be homeless. And it was like, oh, that's an odd decision. And, he, and it wasn't just um, <clears throat> because he was lazy. He actually thought it was the most biblical view you could have. He said, this is true discipleship. And he kept pushing this and pushing this and saying, if you don't do what I'm doing, actually you're living in sin. And I've never run into someone with that extreme of a view since, but I eventually had to say, this is not a biblical narrative. This is not a biblical teaching. It is based on something that happenstantially was true for Jesus and his disciples, but this is not a biblical view of resources. And to demand that of everyone is just patently wrong. And so uh, you start to see that there is this tendency to say wealth is kind of uh, especially in Christian circles, we tend to just land on wealth is the root of all evil. Therefore, we should run from it, get away from it, you know, or just touch it for as, as brief a time as possible. If I just touch it and move away and just kind of get the things I need from it, then I'll be fine. Um, so these are some primary views that you can start to see within our culture. Um, and these shape and form us, whether they are right or wrong, these are things that we start to adopt. We start to say, well, there's some truth and sense in that, and we start to form our views on this. Um, So one of the things uh, we just have to start to ask is, how have my own views been shaped regarding to money? What have been the most influential areas within my own life? And I think... um, just back on my own life, like there is certainly a sense that I'm going to Scripture, but that at times um, it doesn't seem to answer all the questions I have. And so I kind of had partially taken a view of what does the Bible teach on money and partially just taken a view of like what, what works, what seems to kind of work well and keep me, you know, within kind of a view that's somewhat humble to a certain degree. And so you just kind of teeter around this. And so that was kind of one of the things that I started to develop. I think one of the other things is like I would look to mentors of people who had um, views on money and I would just kind of adopt what they thought wholesale. I was like, wow, I like what they're doing. So I'm going to kind of order my finances and my life kind of around the way they do it. Uh, Any other one just perspectives on money that you've seen within our world or other ones that you've seen to be either influential on your own thinking or other people? Yeah. Hmm.
Yeah. Yeah. That has a huge impact. Yeah, the way your parents teach you and your family teaches you. Absolutely. Yeah. I know um, there's pretty big movements around, like, um, is it Dave Ramsey? He's a financial guru. So he's pretty influential uh, since he came out with some really robust teaching on money and the way that we should uh, kind of combat kind of the, the mentality towards debt and spending and credit. And so his views became very, very influential throughout the church, I think. Yeah. Just hearing the way he processed it. Yep, yep. Uh, and that's kind of like a rational argument just to say, like, it seems like there's a blessing in money kind of kind of just innate there. Um, even just picking up on that, when I, like, just the title of this, like, this is called The Blessing of Money. Like, how does that sit with you guys? Like, do you think of money being a blessing or does it more naturally sit at, you know, money is the root of all evil? Be cautious. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a ability to see that there is goodness to money. Yeah. Yeah. For you guys. Yep. Yeah. Any others? Just as you think about engaging money that way, that it can be a even potentially can be a blessing. Is that difficult or is that easy? As you look at scripture, like, oh yeah, clearly God gave us things as a blessing. Hmm. 
Yeah. 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 If you, you know, were a businessman that made a lot, it wasn't necessarily a blessing there. It was more the out of desperation, like God provided. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. When you think of how, how do we use it? How are we supposed to use it? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> mm hmm Sure. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. That's like the the pinnacle of success in the American dream. Yep. 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 If you dream it, you can make it happen. Yeah, type thing. Um, <clears throat> so as we think about this, one of the things we're really after is can we frame a biblical perspective of money and see the blessing that God has given to us and how he's given it to us. And, and really, Gloria, as you said, how are we to view our ownership of this? Like God has given us this money, and there is uh, a sense in which it's not just money. Like God has given us all resources, and really money is kind of, you know, like you, you have products, you have uh, services, products, things you can sell, land, you can trade, all these sorts of things. And sometimes even just uh, in Old Testament times, it was even the size of your family, kind of your workforce, like the ability to protect yourself, the ability to do those things. And so it was all of this that God framed um, resources around. And you think of who God is, and like one of our natural inclinations is to say, well, yeah, it is all God's. But then it turns over to our money, and it gets a little difficult to know what to do with that. But first and foremost, just to frame this, to say, who owns, where does it all come from? Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is the very foundation for viewing resources, money, and the things that God gives us as good. What does it say again and again before the fall? If we were to view this concept outside of sin and the way God created the world, we're able to come back again and again and say, God created all land. This thing that we take for ourselves now, different countries take for themselves and fight over these things. And there are plenty of resources within land that are worth money. Uh, and says, God created all these things, and it was all very good. God created all the animals. God created all of the wildlife. He created all 
of the things that we see in front of us. Every ability to make money. And even in general economics, I mean, God is the one who did this just for no other reason. It's not, I mean, he's able to create it from nothing. So there's a sense that God owns it all. He made it. It's his. It belongs to him. Um, And one of the things he does for the people of Israel regularly is he reminds them of this. This is mine. And he's not bashful about this. This is mine. Every year they had a harvest, he would say, don't forget, that's mine. (laughs) And we don't often think of it that way, but he would say that. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, we'll just look at this really quick along with several, several others, just to, to add some substance to this. He says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do Uh, to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish." There is a stern reminder that God would bring to his people. And oftentimes we don't think of ourselves as the people of God, uh, but the goodness of wealth is viewed directly in relation to a right relationship to God. And God is reminding us, this is mine. All of this is mine. And don't you forget who gave it to you. And it is easier for us to forget it because we are farther removed from the way that God has worked in those ways. We're farther removed from it. And so the way he's able to say, remember what it was like in Egypt when you were slaves, you had nothing. I redeemed you. I gave you the ability to have wealth. All these promises within the Abrahamic covenant, one of the things he says is, I will give you land. I will give you relationship with me. I will give you children. It'll multiply and multiply, I will give you all these things and great wealth and blessing so that you can be a blessing. And so there is a sense and God is saying, right relationship with me, living in right relationship with me, this is where those prosperity gospel guys get really off as they hear, if I do the right things, I get lots of stuff. And in general, it is true. You live in right relationship with the one who created everything There's blessing to be found because there's no end of his wealth. But he does remind us, that's mine. Go even further just to hear some of the ways that God speaks of this. Who owns it all? Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 1 Corinthians 10. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Kind of re-quoting that. Haggai 2, 8. And I will shake the 
the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He's saying it's not only the money within Israel. He's saying if I want the money from all the nations, it's coming to me. (laughs) <laughs> There's no concern about how to rebuild the temple. Psalm 50. For every beast of the forest is mine, the, cow, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. God's not coming to us saying, can you give these things to me? He's saying, it's all mine. So you get this really clear picture here in Scripture. Who's does it all, who does it all belong to? It's God. And it, uh, as we come to our own finances and wealth, there is a very different perspective that even an American dream has to a biblical perspective to say, do you have the ability to make great wealth here? Well, yeah, absolutely. Whose is it? It's all God's. And even if we don't recognize it, it is true. Even if we don't believe it, it is true. Even thinking of land, when the Lord had set up all of the promised land and he had given it to the different nations, one of the things he did for them that's very unique in our economy, he had given them all equal portions of land to a certain degree. He gave to them as they had need. It wasn't even always equal. He said, this is what you need, and I will give this to this tribe and this tribe, and even down to clans and families. And he's saying, this is yours to a certain degree. Uh, but one of the things that Leviticus 25 teaches about us, about the, the way he gave this to him, is uh, 25, 23, he says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow redemption of the land. So what's he saying? He said, you can't sell this. It belongs to me. And in fact, the year of Jubilee and things get made right, he's saying it goes back to the person I gave it to. A very strange economy when we think of our own world, when we think of the ownership that we're able to have to say, that's mine, that, that house and that land is mine, and most of us is like, well, it's the banks, but I pay them. And <laughs> but we still have this sense of ownership that we think, that's mine. And yet Scripture very clearly teaches the people of Israel, this is yours to use, to have, to, to do with as you will, but you don't have the right and the authority to sell it, to take it forever. You don't have the right and the authority, uh, even if one family was to grow in wealth and prosperity, they didn't have the right to take over other lands within that area. They didn't have the right or the ability to amass great wealth in that sense because it was all God's. And so it was a very strange... um, economy for, the, for our modern minds, the way that these things worked was very, very strange. Um, there's a couple other verses there you can look to, and it's one of the things you see is that there is um, something that we can say with absolute certainty, and these are a couple blanks you have here, and this is very simple, and yet it is helpful for us to hear this. 
God created all things, we can say that with certainty, and even further, all things belong to God. So those two things are absolutely true. God created all things, and he maintains ownership of them. And this is a foundation for us in the church as believers to say, who, does it, who, who owns all this? Well, it's my God who owns it. Who owns the entirety of it? Well, it's my God. doesn't mean I have the ownership of it. I can't demand things from people, but I do believe God has the ownership of it. So how, is, how are resources and money in light of God's ownership and creation of it to be viewed? A couple things here. It is good. It is very good. But it can only be good because... God created it. God said, I created this on the first day and the second day and the third day, and it was good. That's why it's good. That's the foundation of it being good, is it comes out of the person and the character of God. And so we say, yes, resources, money, the things that God has provided for us, the ability of these things to multiply, it is all very good. It's not good because it benefits us. It's not good because we say it's good. It's good because God created it good. And it's also, this is third on a list there, it's good for its intended purpose. So it's good because God created it. It's good uh, just because he says it, not because we say it. But it's also good in the way that God created it to be used. So those are the ways resources can be good. And that kind of gets to your point, Kelly, to say, is there a wrong way to use God's good resources? Absolutely. Um, And that's where some of our understandings have really been formed around God's good creation. So we get into this idea then, God has created everything. God has given it to us to a certain degree. How should we view ownership and ruling when it comes to Scripture? Everything belongs to God. Is it legitimate to really own anything as the believer? Can we own stuff? Or is it just like, well, I'm just kind of here along for the ride. And it is um, kind of challenging to actually come to an understanding of this when we look at Scripture. At times, it can be rather difficult to even sort out. Hmm. Right. 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 Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at that Leviticus 25, like to that point, like there's a sense in which God says, like, you don't have the ownership rights of this land. And that, I mean, we're not necessarily just talking about this swath of land anymore. Like things have expanded out. The, the believers are everywhere now. So it's not just in this chosen uh, this chosen people in this specific land. And so it, but there are principles within that. You start to see the way God views resources, the way that he empowered them to have it. Um, and in Acts 2.44, this moves us into the New Testament. One of the things uh, it starts to frame for us is this kind of this, this willingness to say, it's not really mine. And it's really stark. Acts 2.44 
It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see this moment where the Holy Spirit is poured out, and you see this moment of believers living in and by the Spirit in their natural lives. And what does it do to them? It starts to give them this perspective of uh, they still have ownership, but it's less tightly gripped to say, if you have need, I'll give to that need. <laughs> I'll care for those things you have. So we are, in a sense, within the church, there's a beautiful picture here. Um, aside from our own flesh and nature, uh, lived in and under the rule of God. We share all things in common, and yet there is a very clear sense in which God does give us things. So there's a, a way in which we share these things in common, but He does give things to us, and we can stand on that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. To a certain degree, and yet I actually think he gives us a bit more claim to it than even that. So it's. It's kind of true, but it's, I mean, some of it's even in the definition of stewardship. But there's, there's a sense in which, like, it's baffling that God who owns all these things says it's mine gives us some level of ownership. Look at some of this. It says, uh, Psalm 115, 16, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. And there's a sense of, like, it's the Lord's, but he's given it to us. And that really is true. He's given it to us. He's given us uh, this sense of priority within creation to order it, to develop it, to manage it to a certain degree. And one of the things that God says is you shall rule over it. You shall have dominion over it. Like There is this kingly responsibility, and yet the, this is not an absolute king who has all authority over it, but it is a sense that it really is yours, and there's a responsibility as if you did own it. And so it's a rather difficult way to think of it. And this is um, something that I think becomes very critical for us. Um, it would, if we're thinking about mankind and our place within God's good creation, it's not right to say that man is the climax of God's good creation. It is very tempting to say, like, God has made me, and man and woman, and he has said, you are what all this is about. In fact, uh, you know, just out on our wall out there, we would say, no, that, if I really think about that, that is not true. Like, this is all about God and God's glory, and yet it is tempting to think, like, I'm the climax of God's good creation. In fact, we are not the climax, but there is a sense in which uh, we have been given a unique priority within God's good creation. So there's a priority that humans are uniquely valuable to God. Humans are uniquely, um, I mean, this is what the whole 
idea of redemption is about, is that we do have a unique place within creation, but it is not for God to set us up and say, I want to give you all this blessing just because you are great. So we're not the climax, but we are unique within creation. That is to order God's creation, to develop it. Um, and one of the things that you start to see is what is the climax of, of all of this? Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? <clears throat> Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the climax of that creation narrative really becomes that last day when God rests and enjoys the glory of all that he had done and enjoys the rest that we can enter into with him. And he invites us into this. It's a unique place for humans to be able to say, six days you shall labor and on the seventh you get to rest with God, to attribute glory to him, to show all that is true of God. It's really rather interesting if you think about it that way and it starts to frame a biblical worldview that says is all that God is about about making me happy making me wealthy making me satisfied well all the way back to here we'd say no that's not the purpose and the goodness of wealth but it is to bring God glory so we think about this idea of ownership in this context it is all meant for God's purposes to operate in the way that God created things to be used, like there is an order to the way God created everything. And you use it rightly. Like this is something that's really interesting about the sciences. If you study plants and crops and things like that and you learn how to use them better, they produce better. <laughs> God's good creation tends to have that about it. It is self-sustaining by nature just because of who God is. Like, you use it right, you use it the way it was supposed to be used, apart from sin, and it is going to uh, produce more than you need. In fact, to the point where that statement about uh, Acts chapter 2, like, it should not even be a problem when you think of God's good creation without sin. Like, you would say, I have so much, just take the extra. <laughs> like, I have so much from everything that I've done. So we see only labor with our hands in which there is a finiteness, a limitedness to our resources. And so what does this do in our hearts? We say, well, this is all I have left. I don't know if I can give it to you. And yet it is all for God's glory. So we think of this idea of ownership, stewardship, dominion or ruling. Um, and there are senses in which God has given us ownership. Um, but not in the sense we probably think of it. So ownership, to a certain degree, we, can, we would say, it's, I can do what I want with it. It's mine. I can sell it as I want. I can use it as I want. It does, no one's holding me accountable. It's just mine. If I lose it, it's on me. And that is not the sense in which God has given us stuff. Stewardship, we start to think of, um, maybe even as an example, Joseph in Egypt. He was a steward, but he didn't necessarily... You know, for a certain time, he didn't really belong there. He was managing these things, even as a slave, as a prisoner. And he's managing them, and he's managing them well, but he doesn't really have ownership of it. And then later, it probably goes more to ownership when Pharaoh identifies him differently. But that would probably be more of the idea of stewardship. It, it disassociates, is God my God? Um, and in the New Testament, it moves towards, is that my father, my family? 
And that changes that idea of stewardship. It might be stewardship within a family where you have some ownership that is beyond um, a stewardship that is just distant. God says, this is yours because you're my people. And then we come to this last one, dominion ruling. And this is, I think, rightly what God has given us the authority to have. We have a kingly nature within the world to say, these are things for you to manage and to have and to hold. And these are given to you by God. And he trusts you with them to do with as you will. But to imagine that all this exists for us is just absurd arrogance. If we think that this is all here just for me, it's not true. It is actually here for God, God's purposes. So we are to have dominion over all of these things. We are to rule over them. And we hear that and it probably gives us kind of big egos already. Like, oh, I'm a king. (laughs) I like the sound of that. And that is only because we have kind of a common conception of a kingly nature. That is not actually biblical. In fact, there were uh, godly kings and then there are ungodly kings. And how do godly kings, how are they meant to hold their position? First Kings chapter 12, uh, God is describing this to the people of what the king is to be like. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to his people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, they will be your servants forever. You hear the relationship there? To the king, he's saying, if you will be a servant to them, they will serve you. There is a sense in which the kingly nature in the Bible was meant to be a servant of his people. Very unusual when we think of monarchies, when we think of people who have absolute power like that, they amass more and more wealth, more and more power, and they say, it is your purpose to serve me. And yet, in the biblical sense, a king was meant to serve people, to care for them, to use his resources for the benefit of a society, to use his resources in the way that God had called them to use them. He wasn't an absolute authority in that sense. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he you shall set as king over you. Oh, only, uh, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself an excess of silver and gold." This is the type of king that Israel was to have, not to acquire many horses, which had lots of value. I mean, this is the most powerful person in all of Israel. God says he's not to acquire great wealth. He's not to acquire tons of money for himself. He's not to acquire all of these wives. And this is what Solomon did, right? And you start to see, I mean, what is it that God is setting us up to do? It is to use God's resources in a way that is a blessing 
to people around us. It doesn't mean we can't bring in great wealth. It doesn't mean that some can't be uniquely gifted to acquire wealth. But the way that God describes it for even the king of Israel is to say, this is not your purpose just to become the most wealthy and most powerful. It is to serve those under your rule. And they will serve you, but it is your job to serve them. You start to hear this language, and you're like, man, this is the way that I hear authority within marriage. There is an authority structure, but men are to be servants of their home. Men are to serve their wives. Within the church, elders, what are you to do? Not lord your authority over people, but to serve them. You start to get this picture of all the resources God has given us How is this to be viewed? I haven't been given authority for my own purposes, but for those that God gave me to use them for. Very, very interesting as we get into that. So the primary purpose of God giving us ownership is not for our own purposes and benefit, but for God's glory and the care of what he has entrusted us to do. So what are some of these gifts that God has given to us? Genesis 1 and 2. Relationship, land, wealth, people, family. There are many types of resources, and money is an outworking of all of these things, but there is a responsibility with each of these, which sometimes can be monetized to certain degrees, but there is a responsibility that we have with all of the gifts that God has given to us. And so when we think about money, it's hard to separate it from the general blessing that God gives to us. To say, there is a relationship that they had with God. All of this is based on a right relationship with God. He's saying, you are not given the ownership just to run off and do your own thing. In fact, this is all lived in right relationship with me, and I own it. The land. He said, this is yours to use, to grow. In fact, it's a responsibility for you to use it well and wisely. In fact, it should produce more and more in abundance if you live in right relationship with me and my lot. It should get better. And as I bring wealth in, as you trade with other people, like there is a sense in which lived in right relationship with God, like national economy of Israel would grow. It would grow and and produce more and more to the point where it was probably one of the wealthiest areas, I mean, a small little place. Like, they grew substantially. It was unreal, the level of growth they had. But there was a responsibility they had to use that for the benefit of people. And there is also a sense that God says, I will uh, cause you to be fruitful and multiply. I mean, back then, like having a bigger family, having more people, uh, even today, like having a bigger nation, like it means power to some degree. And that's a lot of times what money means. It means power. It means like all these things that God has given to you, us, to say you have all of these things. God gives land to Israel so they would all have enough. He gives resources to Israel so they would all have enough. And they would look to their God and say, it is enough. I have what I need. Even when they're going through the desert, he starts to teach them this of, do you have enough? You start to get this picture of like when the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, like, I've learned in any circumstance, whether I have a lot or very little. Even Israel learned this. In the desert, he says, I've given you bread, like more than you can eat. It's like coming out your nose (laughs) to the point where like you don't know what to do with it. You have water. You have the things you need. And then they move into the land and it's like, It overproduces. 
It has more than they can imagine. And there is a sense that that is not the prosperity gospel, but it is something entirely different. And it is the right relationship lived in and under the rule of God, and right relationship with God, recognizing whose it really is, and understanding that it actually has a purpose. And so when you hear guys like Kenneth Copeland or Joel Olstein say that God wants to bless me because I'm the end of God's eternal purpose, you'd say, absolutely not. <laughs> you don't have the right and response, the right and ability to buy those things just for yourself. You don't have the right to build this mansion for yourself just for your own enjoyment. In fact, that is patently unbiblical if we look at the way God set up Israel. Uh, and yet God would say, I will bless you in right relationship with me. I will bless you. Um, yeah, so that really flies in the face of, is God's eternal purpose just to make all of us glorified and happy? No. This is really the heart of the problem with that prosperity gospel. It is not primarily God's purpose just to make me happy. Yet I will be perfectly satisfied in every situation lived in and under the rule of God. Um, and yet that may not always look like we expect. Sometimes it's more than I want, and I have to learn how to live humbly with more than I want. But give us this day our daily bread, Lord. <laughs> In fact, what I probably need more from God than physical resources oftentimes is spiritual ones. And the Lord says, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the same type of God that we serve, that he pours in superabundance to us. So we think of our work and ec economic resources. So similarly to the blessings that God gives to us, monetary, land, people, all these things that God has given to us, we have to look at work and economics. And we say, what do we think about work? Is this just a necessary evil? And you'll remember that work is not a result of the fall. Work is good. God has given us work to do. In fact, not working, that's unbiblical. To say, I don't want to work. I don't want to do these things would be to say, you know, just, you know, I just want to be me and the Lord all day long where I don't do anything. God has not created us this way. And work looks very different for many situations, but we have to have this general understanding that work is good. It is to be something that we pursue. It is to be something that we learn to do in and under the rule of God more and more. So work is something we've been invited into, and it is prepared for us, and it is good. So we do have certain responsibilities when we think about the things that God has given to us, when he says you are to rule over it, you are to take care of it, you are to do these things, there are certain ways that we are to care for the things God has given to us. So here's a couple um, that the people of Israel would have had to do. So when they think of their own responsibilities, they have natural resources. In fact, um, within the economy of Israel, they actually didn't say, like, this is mine, that's yours. They had shared access to natural resources. This is for the benefit of the whole nation. And so it is not meant to be saying, you have to come and earn your way to get this that I have. In fact, it's saying, if you need you know, a well, for example, if you need 
access to this. I will give it to you. It's not mine. I'm not going to leverage what God has given me at your expense, especially within the people of Israel. And then there is the right and the responsibility of work. So it's a right that we have. We don't often think of it this way, that you get to participate in everything that God has called you to. And there are certain specific responsibilities that that brings with us. And there is also an expectation within God's economy of growth and trade. These things should grow. I will bless you. I will give you more than you know what to do with so that you will be a blessing. There is a sense that it grows and grows. And to say, does God expect this with things he's given to us? You can think of parables in the New Testament where it's like, I gave these things to you and I expect them to, like, so this is the way my creation works. It overproduces. And yes, there are times that there is sin that causes brokenness to those norms within God's creation. There are times uh, even within the people of Israel where famine or drought or different things would cause brokenness to this general norm of God's good creation. But still within the brokenness of the world, God said, you can care for one another. And within the people of Israel, actually there is a fair sharing of the product of economic growth. So it is kind of this idea of fellowship of believers. Uh, it's very odd to us. Within Israel, it was to say, like, this is for the benefit of Israel. This is not just for my own personal benefit. There's a, a sharing of that that is very strange to us. Like, we start to think of, like, just redistribution of wealth. It's like, no, that's not what we're talking about. This is very unique in the sense that you do own things, but I'm going to care for you as you have need. I'm going to help with those things you have need. And there's a distribution of those things to say, I am for you. Like, I mean, that mentality of do for others as you'd have them do unto you, like this, this is built within the economy of God to say, I will care for you the way it would be nice to be cared for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No. It's very countercultural in America to be to view to view thing our things that way. Um, it's it's very different. It's not to say it never happens, but it is it is fairly countercultural. That my stuff is mine is is kind of the way things go. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I mean, all this is to be viewed. I mean, this is um, 
within the context of God's people. We have to remind ourselves, like there's a slightly different view when it goes outside of God's people, but there's still ways in which you are to be a blessing to the nations. It does carry out. Uh, and there is an evangelistic and, and, and um, a missional mindset that does start to move outwards from the people of God that they say, holy cow, like <laughs> what is going on there? Like there is blessing lived in and under the rule of God and these people care for one another. Um, and this is something that, I mean, it carries forward in a very unique way for us from the Old Testament into the New Testament, that there is a pattern of the way God works within his community, within his people. And we hear it in the Old Testament, you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense, and you start to hear that this is something that continues into the New Testament without much of a hiccup. There is a, a, a more full version of this coming, when Jesus comes again, but even right now this exists. We don't have a specific land we're after. We don't have a specific way in which God has said, this is for you, the church. This is where you're going to live. In fact, it has changed to a certain degree. I mean, the earth will be ours, but right now there is a sense that this still is true for us. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about the church. You are inheritors of the blessing of that were given to Abraham. You, the church, you get these blessings. And it's less in kind of physical constraints of land and more in the fellowship of believers. In Christ you have this. You start to study the New Testament scriptures and you say, this fellowship of believers that we start to hear about operates very similarly in economic activity to the way Israel was to operate. Hear this in 15.4, and we'll end with this. I'll pick up next week on some of this. It says, Deuteronomy 15.4, But there will be no poor among you. The Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said to any, <clears throat> No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as, they were, uh, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and, bought the pro- and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Um, you hear that same language. There is none amongst the people of God who are of need. And this is something I have found particularly true even here at GCF. We have um, funds for those who need things. And it is really pretty neat to be able to say, as people come with needs, we're able to say, like, how can we fulfill those? Um, And sometimes it even happens organically within home groups that when people bring needs to say, I will care for those needs. Like, we're not going to leave you as those without hope. Like, you're part of this fellowship. Pretty pretty rich to be a part of. Let's do close with that. We'll pick up with this next week on tithing and then kind of look also at the curse of money or the, the difficulty of these things that came in with the fall. Let's do pray. Father, we do thank you that we um, are not left without much teaching in Scripture about money and resources, the things you've given us to do. And even amidst a culture that speaks very loudly about how we should believe and think about money, how we should believe and think about our own resources, Lord, we're not left without direction here. But Lord, we pray that 
uh, there would be a unity of spirit even in our church as we grow in fellowship, that your spirit would work in and through us to orient our lives around the teaching of Scripture, to orient our lives around the way that you would have us to live. And Lord, that these things would change the way we live, that we would live in right relationship with you and one another in a way that does glorify you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.